Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. ...to the book of Mark, please. Mark 15 will be our text this morning. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay because there are paperback Bibles underneath chairs in front of you. If you don't even own a Bible and want to take one of those with you, we would be delighted to have you uh, receive that as our gift to you. Um, but as I always say or often say, it would be a big help to you, I think, if you had a, the text of Scripture open before you to follow along. We try to get into the details of the text to see what God has to say to us through His inspired Word, every word inspired, so we want to pay close attention to Uh, the passage of Scripture. Mark 15, 1 through 15 is our text um, today. Uh, So, uh, yeah, holiday weekend, uh, Black Friday we just had a couple days ago. I don't know uh, what your feelings are about Black Friday, uh, whether you go out and and shop or just stay home. Differences of opinion on that opportunity to get a head start on, on Christmas shopping. Mary and I actually went down to the Fashion Mall in Indianapolis on Friday. It was a mistake. Uh, but we thought we'd, we'd try it. Normally, we don't, we don't go, but we tried this time, and sure enough, it was just what we expected, just tons of people uh, everywhere, um, crowds, crowds everywhere. I think that's probably the main reason why uh, many of us stay home. Some of us stay home on Black Friday. We don't like the crowds, right? Crowds can be kind of an unpleasant thing, right? I mean, if uh, maybe one of the reasons you live here in, in Muncie. It's a smaller area. Maybe one of the reasons is you don't like the crowds of the big city. Uh, some of us don't go to sporting events, football games, and concerts because we, we don't like the crowds. Some of us are hesitant about traveling. You go to the airport, particularly on the holidays, and there's so many crowds, and they make us uncomfortable. They're unpleasant. Sometimes crowds can actually be dangerous. You know, you might have heard on the news various times about uh, soccer matches where the crowds kind of get out of control. There was a concert back in Cincinnati, The Who played in 1979, I think, and crowd got out of control. People got crushed to death in the crowds. But crowds are interesting social phenomena. I mean, they can also affect the way we think and even what we do. Crowds have a strong influence on us. I mean, maybe you've been in this situation where you've been um, at a concert maybe, and you're watching somebody perform, and you're thinking to yourself, this is really not very good. And then the concert gets over, and you notice people starting to stand up. They're giving the performer a standing ovation, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not standing. This wasn't any good. But more and more people stand up. And before long, the whole crowd is standing up. And you know what that feels like, right? You just feel what? Like you got to stand up, even though you don't want to stand up. And very often you do stand up because of the influence of the crowd. Isn't that interesting? Crowds have such a strong influence on us. Well, we're looking at a passage here in Mark 15 where the crowd had a very strong influence on a guy named Pontius Pilate. Uh, Mark 15, we were in Mark, uh, it's been a couple of weeks now, but last we were in Mark 14. You might remember that was Jesus and the trial. Uh, Today we're thinking about Jesus and the crowd. Remember last time Jesus and the trial, Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin. He was found guilty of blasphemy, and as a result of that, he was sent to this guy named Pontius Pilate. And in this passage today, what we're going to see is Pilate making 
I, I think I can say this, the most tragic, wicked, evil decision ever made by one person in the history of the world. That's what we're about to read about. The most wicked, scandalous, tragic decision. And the decision was to send the Son of God to His death. And you'll see in this text that one of the reasons Pilate did this was to satisfy a crowd. So let's take a look at this. Mark 15, if you're able to stand, please do so. Read verses 1 through 15. Jesus and the crowd. Here's what it says. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word today, right now. We ask for you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, I mean, here is just the low point of, of humanity's history. Honestly, God in His grace sends us a Savior and we kill Him. That's what we did under the leadership of this guy named Pontius Pilate. It's a, it's a tragic thing for so many reasons, but I think there's three kind of major reasons out of this text why it's so tragic, such a horrible, awful thing. Why is it so tragic that Jesus was sent to the cross? Well, one is this. It's because of His righteousness. It's because of the righteousness of Jesus. So, uh, let me show you this from the text. Again, remember uh, where we were in chapter 14. There was this trial, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin uh, was the uh, collection of Jewish leaders um, the, uh, the uh, chief priests and scribes and elders, and they held this trial uh, for Jesus to discern whether he was guilty or innocent. And re- you might remember it was just a total sham trial. Do you remember that? Just a kangaroo court if you've ever seen one. Uh, people were manufacturing evidence against Jesus. Uh, those who were bringing forth their accusations against Jesus didn't even agree with one another. And it was just a total mess. But nonetheless, they end up finding Jesus guilty of blasphemy. 
And so here we begin in uh, verse 1, and it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with elders, scribes, and the whole council. That's referring to the Sanhedrin. And so they decide, now that they have this guilty verdict on blasphemy, but they're going to bind Jesus, and they lead him away and deliver him to this guy named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Now, if you know anything about the way the court uh, works here in the United States, it, here in America, there's kind of two phases to criminal trials. First of all, you'll have uh, a jury trial. So if a person is accused of a crime, that person is um, set before a jury trial. You have prosecution, you have defense, and the evidence is presented before the jury, and then the jury makes a decision as to whether that person is guilty or innocent. That's the first phase. But what a lot of people don't know is that the sentencing hearing is kind of like a different thing. That, that's like phase two. So if the person is found guilty, that person has to be brought back. Sometimes it's weeks or months later. The person is brought back, and a decision is made on what to sentence this person. What should the penalty be for this guilty person now that the verdict has been handed down? And so the jury decides whether the person is guilty or innocent, but the judge actually decides whether the person will go to jail or suffer the death penalty or, or whatever. So that's kind of what we're seeing here. I know there's differences. We're not reading about the American justice system here, but there is some similarity here. Jesus has already been found guilty by the Sanhedrin, but now he's going to this guy Pilate, who is the judge now, who is going to determine what penalty will Jesus suffer. So that's why uh, we read in verses one, verse 1 that the elders and scribes and council lead Jesus to Pilate. It's for the sentencing. Now, we might pause here for a moment. Who is this guy Pontius Pilate? Probably most of you have heard that name before, Pontius Pilate. We, um, <clears throat> whenever we do the creed here on Sunday mornings, we talk about Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate. I mean, there aren't many people mentioned in the creed. I think there's uh, the Virgin Mary and Jesus, of course, and Pilate. I mean, it's a pretty big deal to have your name included in the, the creed there. Um, this is the Pontius Pilate that is being referred to here in Mark 15. So, uh, you need to understand that Pontius Pilate is not a, not a Jew. He's not part of the Sanhedrin. He's from an entirely different group. Sanhedrin is religious authorities. Pilate is a secular authority. He's a Roman governor. He's a Roman authority. And he ruled uh, over Palestine for about 11 years at this time, and Pilate just had a reputation for being a greedy, ruthless, cold-blooded leader. A ruthless, greedy, cold-blooded leader. There's all sorts of different examples of this. If you look at church history, for instance, there was one case where um, Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct. It's like a major construction project under the Roman Empire, and he just went into the Jewish treasury and just raided it and took all of their money and used it for his construction project. I mean, here's money set aside, the Jews, in their treasury for service to God. Pilate just comes in and says, yeah, I'm going to take that and use it for my own purposes. That's the kind of thing Pilate did. In Luke 13, you might remember there's a story of the, the Galileans whose blood mixed with the sacrifices. Do you remember that? Their blood mixed with the sacrifices. This was under Pilate. We don't know many details about what happened here, but it seems like Pilate was, he oversaw the massacre of people who were coming with their sacrifices to God. And for whatever reason, Pilate had them massacred, and their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. This kind of guy we're talking about here, ruthless dictator. And you might also be asking, really, did, I mean, did, 
Is there really a Pontius Pilate? I mean, did he really exist? I mean, how do we know anyway? You know, all these people in the Bible, did, are, are they real figures? Are they just made up? Do you know that in 1961, an Italian archaeologist discovered a limestone block on which was inscribed Pontius Pilate's name? And it's been dated back to this time, about 2,000 years ago. It's called the Pilate Stone. Caesarea Maritima is the name of the archaeological dig. Uh, 1961, this stone is now in a, a museum in Jerusalem right now. And so there's archaeological proof for the existence of this man, Pontius Pilate. We don't have archaeological proof for every single person in the Bible, but that doesn't mean they didn't exist. It just means we haven't found anything yet. But so many people doubt what we see in the Bible. Oh, there was never a Pontius Pilate. Now we have proof here uh, that he existed. So th that's who Pontius Pilate is. And he's the one who is, um, uh, has authority here, at least earthly authority over Jesus. Verse 2, then Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, notice that that's a different question than what the Sanhedrin asked Jesus in Mark 14. Their question to Jesus was, are you the Messiah? Remember? And Jesus responded, I am, very clearly, yes, I am. But that's not the question that Pilate asked Jesus here. And the reason why is because the Romans don't really care if Jesus claims to be the Messiah. It's not a threat to them. To the Romans, that's a religious thing. That's a Jewish thing. You deal with it, Jews, we don't really care. So it's an offense to the Jews that Jesus would claim to be Messiah, not an offense to the Romans. But what is an offense to the Romans is anybody who claims to be a king. Because the emperor, Caesar, is the one who is in charge, and if anybody claims to be a king, that person is regarded as a threat to the civil order, a threat to the king. And if there's someone who is a threat to the king, he needs to be eliminated. And so that's why Pilate is asking, not do you think you're the Messiah, but do you think you're a king? That's his question. So how does Jesus respond? Well, in verse 2, uh, Jesus says at the very end of verse 2, you have said so. It's, like, it's kind of an odd response, isn't it? Are you king of the Jews? You have said so. Um, there's actually a difference interpretation as to exactly what Jesus meant here. It could be that he, he doesn't want to just say, yes, I am, because that would just immediately make him guilty in the eyes of the Romans and just end the proceedings, maybe. Um, it, it could be also, though, the, the way this is worded is, is what Jesus might be saying is something like, um, you can say that again. In other words, Jesus might be affirming here, you, you have said so, yeah, you said it, Pilate. You know, what you have said is, is true. You can say that again. Um, it's a little bit am, ambiguous, uh, but we see then that the chief priests in verse 3, the Sanhedrin, they're, they're there, and, and they start accusing him of, of many things. And so um, Pilate asks them again in verse 4, have you no answer to make? Aren't you going to respond to these charges that they bring against you? And you might remember in chapter 14, there was a time when Jesus was just quiet, didn't want to dignify the proceedings. And here again, Jesus, verse 5, he, he makes no further answer. He, he's just silent. And perhaps the same thing is going on here. Here we have another unjust situation. I am not going to dignify this by proceeding. But look how Pilate responds in verse 5. Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, that's an interesting word, I think, amazed. It doesn't say Pilate was enraged. 
It doesn't say Pilate was indignant. In fact, that word amaze is the same word that is used uh, throughout the rest of the book of Mark when people are hearing Jesus teach or seeing Jesus do miracles, and it says they were amazed. In other words, it's, it's a kind of a positive affirmation. It's like Pilate, he's a cruel, ruthless man, but he's no dummy. And he actually perceives something here. It's like Pilate is realizing that he's in the presence of somebody extraordinary. He doesn't really know what's going on. He's kind of confused through this whole passage. He doesn't know what's going on. But he knows that there is something special. There is something unique about Jesus. And it seems like Pilate kind of favors Jesus. If you look down to verse 14, verse 14, when the crowd asks for him to be crucified, Jesus says, why? What has he done? I don't see anything wrong with this guy. In fact, in John 18, 38, Pilate says it even more explicitly. He says, I find no guilt in him. I don't see what's wrong here. What's going on here is you got Pilate, the most ruthless, wicked man alive at the time, and even he recognizes the purity and the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus. He's seeing the righteousness of Jesus. There's no there's no charge to be brought against this guy. It's not because there was a charge and Pilate just didn't see it. It's because Pilate knows this is a righteous man. Now, why should we take note of this? Why is Mark making a big deal out of this? Well, it's because what Mark wants us to see here is that Jesus' righteousness shines through every page of the Gospels. What Mark wants us to see is that this is a person unlike anyone else who has ever lived one who is blameless in every way, one whose words and deeds and thoughts were in perfect conformity to the Father all the time. This is a perfect person, and the good news about Jesus being perfect is what that means for you who believe in Him, is that because Jesus is perfect, you don't have to be. You can let go of your perfectionism. All of your efforts, all of your deeds to try to get God to notice you and to love you, to earn His forgiveness and to merit a place in heaven and to do better so that God will take notice of you, you can rest, you can relax. Because the perfection that you're seeking in your own life has already been achieved by Jesus. You can rest in that. Jesus didn't just die for you. He did die for you. Amen to that. But He lived for you also. And that's what we're seeing, the perfection of Jesus in every area of His life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes this very clear. For our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He's perfect, righteous, so that in Him, as we trust in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness that Jesus is achieving that we look at on the pages of Scripture belongs to you who trust in Him. His righteousness is transferred to you. Your sin is laid on Him. His righteousness is transferred to you. Pilate recognized that. I'm not saying a Pilate believed that. There is a difference between recognizing that Jesus is extraordinary and trusting Him for salvation. Those are two different things. There's lots of people who say, yeah, Jesus was a great guy, great leader, great teacher but they don't believe in Him as their Savior. And that's a step that you got to think about. Is Jesus extraordinary to you merely? 
Or do you see that Jesus died for you and was righteous for you? That's what it is to be a Christian. So this is one thing that just makes it tragic. Jesus was righteous and perfect, and yet He's sent to the cross. Wow. All right. Second thing that we see, uh, the envy of the religious leaders. Again, what are we looking at? The, the reasons here, why it's so tragic that Jesus was sent to the cross. It's kind of the reason that He was sent to the cross, the envy of the religious leaders. Maybe you've wondered this as we've gone through the book of, uh, of Mark. Um, why is it that the Jews are so intent on killing Him? Has that question occurred to you? I mean, it started all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, all the way almost to the beginning of the Gospels, and they're already getting together trying to figure out how to destroy Him, it says in Mark 3, 6. Why? I mean, here's a guy who heals the sick, takes care of widows, opens the eyes of the blind, opens the ears of the deaf, has this amazing teaching ability. Why would you want to kill a guy like that? And we finally get the very clear, explicit reason here in verses 8 to 10. The crowd came up, began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. We'll talk about that in a second. Verse 9, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 10, again, Pilate's perceptive, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. It was envy. That's the reason. It's not a complicated, really, political reason that might have something to do with it, but at the root level, what's going on here is the problem of envy. Have you ever felt envious of somebody? That's what put Jesus on the cross at, at one level. It's bigger than that. I know that, but at some level, that was an important reason. Envy. Envy. Envy shows up in the Scriptures here and there. Um, Psalm 73, this is the psalm where the psalmist is... Like he's really disillusioned because he sees wicked people getting away with everything that they want to do and living a happy life. And he's saying, I live this godly life and I have a hard life. They live a wicked life and they get everything. So he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I mean, I almost fell away from the faith. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw them getting good things, and I wasn't getting good things, and it drove me crazy. How about Proverbs uh, 14? A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy eats you up from the inside. There's a difference between envy and jealousy, I, I think, a slight difference. I think jealousy is more personal, like jealousy is when you feel threatened because somebody that you like likes somebody else better than you. It's more about wanting affection from people. I think that's what's going on with jealousy, where envy is, is a little more about what people have. People have something, and you're not really looking for their affection. You're looking for what they have. You, you want what they have. You, you notice that they have a lot of money, and you want that. You notice that they're they're beautiful, they're good-looking, and you want that. You notice they're smart, they're intelligent, they have a great sense of humor, they know the Bible really well, and, and you want that. And there's nothing wrong with wanting those things, but where jealousy and envy go bad and what they have in common is it's not just wanting something, it's resenting the fact that someone else has something that you want and don't have. That's what's come to it. It's, it's resentment. Like Thomas Aquinas says that 
Envy is sorrow for another's good. Someone else has something good, someone else does something well, someone else has a certain appearance, and it makes you sorrowful. That's, that's envy. Uh, Nathaniel Vincent, an old Puritan, says, how much of hell is there in the temper of an envious man? The happiness of another is his misery. The good of another is his affliction. Envy makes him a hater of his neighbor and his own tormentor. <laughs> envy is a way to torment yourself, makes the bones rot. Uh, Gavin Ortland says this, just as pride is the opposite of humility, envy can be thought of as the opposite of love. Love says, I'm happy when you're happy and I'm sad when you're sad. Envy says, I'm happy when you're sad and I'm sad when you're happy. Could anything be more terrible? It, it might not seem like that big of a deal, really. But here's the dangerous thing about envy, is that envy is just a couple state steps away from hate, and hate is just a couple steps away from murder. And that's what we're seeing right here in verse 10. It's what Pilate is perceiving. It was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. For what? To be murdered, to be executed, to be killed. Envy is uh, an awful thing, terrible thing. Perhaps envy is rotting your bones today or lately. What, what can you do? What can you do about envy? It can take root. It can be hard to get away from. It could be a lifelong fight for you. I'm going to offer two quick suggestions about what you can do to fight envy. Here, here's one thing you can do is that whatever it is that you envy in another person, encourage them and affirm them in the very thing that you're envious about. Like, you're envious because they're beautiful. Tell them they look beautiful today. You're envious because they have a great sense of humor. You tell them, man, you are hilarious. Affirm them in the very thing you're envious about. That's the way to do battle, to wage war against this in, in your heart. It's a way to displace it from your heart. The other um, way to do battle with this, of course, is, is to pray. But, but not just praying for the person, but again, praying for that person very specifically in the thing that you're envious about. So, um, Gavin Ortland, who wrote this book where this quote comes from, he has a brother um, named Dane Ortland. And Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, which I think several of you have, have read. It's a highly recommended book, Gentle and Lonely, Dane Ortland. And so, here's Gavin. Gavin is Dane's brother. And Gavin said later in this chapter, he said, you know, he said, really, I don't have a problem with, with envying my brother uh, on this issue, but just in case I might fall into that, he said, here's what I do. Whenever I hear somebody say how much God has used my brother's book in their lives, I get on my knees and I pray that God would do it all the more. God, keep blessing my brother. Keep using that book in the lives of others. That's a way to fight envy. Peter is, is pretty clear here. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It's envy that led this chief priest to call for Jesus to go to the cross. Who knows what envy might lead you or me to do uh, if we don't act on it now. So that's another tragic thing here is the reason that Jesus sent to the cross is not just Jesus' righteousness here, but it's also the envy of the religious leaders. And then the, the last thing we have to consider here, as I keep looking to the left, 
The other reason that Jesus is called to go to the cross is because of the madness of the crowd. <laughs> the madness of the crowd. I'm actually borrowing this phrase from um, a 2019 book by Douglas Murray uh, called The Madness of Crowds. And so he comments in this book about what we're experiencing in our culture right now. He says we're experiencing crowd madness. That is, that there are pressures upon us in our American culture, Western culture, there are pressures to believe things that are unbelievable. And, and there's pressure to not object to things that are very clearly objectionable. And so here's what Murray says, there is something demeaning and eventually soul-destroying about being expected to go along with claims you do not believe to be true and cannot hold to be true. Crowd madness is something we are in the middle of and something we need to find our way out from. And he gives some examples, you know, cultural hot-button issues, pressures to believe that heterosexuality and homosexuality are basically the same, pressure to believe that it's perfectly fine for a boy to want to become a girl or a girl to want to become a boy, pressures to believe that a man can become pregnant. I mean, people are believing that. What else what other explanation can there be for people believing that other than crowd madness? And that's what's happening here in chapter 15. There's this only, there's this crowd madness kind of going on here in chapter 15. So here's what happens. We pick up with verse 6. There is a custom, it says, during the feast, during the Passover feast, there was a custom where the crowd could request that one prisoner would be released. Uh, and so Pilate says, all right, let, let's, let's try this. Verse 7, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. Um, and so Pilate is going to give the crowd <clears throat> an opportunity to choose. He can, the crowd can ask for one or the other to be released. They can ask for the murderer to be released, or they can ask for Jesus to be released. And so that's what happens in verse 9. Um, he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release for you Jesus? Okay, let him go right now. At your request, I will free him. The one who's been healing the sick and opening the eyes of the blind and opening the ears of the deaf, teaching amazing, loving people, caring for the poor, sick, and hungry. We, we can release him. Or we can release Barabbas, this guy who's a murderer and has been in prison. So what's it going to be? Crowd. Would seem to be an easy decision, right? That's a no-brainer. And yet, when a crowd goes mad, crazy things happen. And that's what occurs. Verse 11, chief priests, they stir up the crowd. They're railing them up, getting them all wild and crazy about Jesus. Who knows what they're saying, but they're stirring up the crowd. And so in verse 12, uh, Pilate again says to them, what shall I do with the man? You know, give him another opportunity. Ask the question again. They've had time to reflect on it a little bit. What do they say? What's their decision? The righteous one or the guilty one? Verse 13, crucify Jesus. That's what we want. The innocent one. Crucify him, kill him, execute him. Pilate says to them, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted all the more. They didn't say it just once. They said it twice. 
Crucify him. What a crazy crowd. Madness of crowds. Friends, there's a warning. There's a warning here about the influence of crowds. In other words, crowds, that is popular opinion. That is cultural trends. That is the thing that almost everybody else believes in, but you're not so sure about it. Do you have the conviction, do you have the strength of character to tell the difference between what is true and what is the result of a crazy crowd? Are your convictions, friends, built on the fickle madness of popular opinion or on the stable, enduring Word of God? That is an important question to ask because it can be the difference in believing what is true and believing what is false. Paul tells us here very clearly the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Certainly a warning for us today. But friends, here is the, the good news, the good news as we bring this to a close. The good news is that God is in charge of all of this. God is sovereign over this. this. This crowd is out of control, but God is in control. And, and He's doing something here. He, he's arranging something. In fact, what we have here in the crowd's decision to free Barabbas instead of Jesus is a, actually a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because here we have Jesus, the one who is innocent and righteous, is condemned and here is Barabbas, the one who is the guilty murderer, and he goes free. Well, guess what, friends? You and I are Barabbas. We're the guilty. We're the ones deserving death. But because of the gospel, we're the ones who go free. This is a picture of the gospel, the great exchange. The sinless one dies, the sinful one lives. Jesus is crucified. Barabbas is spared. The author of life is killed, and the one who deserves death lives. And this is the hope for anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. Jesus died in your place so that you might live. John Stott, I think, just sums this up so well, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's the gospel, friends. Do you believe this? Is this your hope? Is this your confidence for being received by God, for going to heaven, for having your sins forgiven? This is the only solution that God has provided for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, don't follow the crowd. Follow the Word of God. Follow Jesus, the King of the Jews, the King of all the earth. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for all that You've endured for us. We thank you, Jesus, that even in your innocence, you gave yourself up to a painful and humiliating death so that those of us who deserve that go free instead. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. We thank you, Lord. You've loved us that much to endure the cross for us. God in heaven, by your Spirit, help us to live for you until the day we are taken from this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.